0: new dean uh, of the of the school and this is the second uh, of our panels on September 11th on the September 11th itself uh, we had a panel on the international implications of September 11th and today we are going to explore uh, the domestic implications and I'm going to let my colleague uh, Chris Eisgruber the head of the law and public affairs program introduce the panel I wanted to say to all of you that this is uh, the second in a series of uh, panel discussions that we'll be holding probably at six-week intervals uh, throughout the year uh, on both foreign and domestic policy. Issues showcasing Wilson School faculty, but also faculty from other places uh, in the university. Uh, this will culminate uh, in a foreign policy symposium on April 25th and 26th, uh, the Princeton Colloquium on International Affairs. Uh, our subject this year will be uh, a world of right or wrong? Question mark. Uh, the, turn to mor- the return to morality uh, in international relations. So we will be programming uh, various talks that look at the questions of a return to morality from Baghdad to Monterey uh, and what that means in terms of thinking of ourselves as world citizens. And as I said, we'll then have a large public colloquium. So watch this space. Chris.
1: Well, let me add my welcome to to, uh, the one that Dean Slaughter has already given. As as, uh, she has said, uh, this panel uh, is distinguished from the one that we held a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, by the somewhat artificial mechanism of saying that was about the international aspects of the policy legacy of 9-11, and uh, this is about the domestic uh, policy aspects. I say somewhat artificial because – the, the horrible events of September 11th themselves are uh, describable either in, in domestic policy terms or in foreign policy uh, terms, so you can uh, think of them uh, equally well as uh, either uh, a horrible uh, uh, criminal um, uh, assault upon uh, innocent persons, uh, American targets occurring within the borders of the United States by persons' with, uh, residents within the United States, or as uh, Uh, The beginning of uh, a war, a war being uh, prosecuted by uh, a terrorist organization uh, headquartered outside the United States and sending agents uh, into the United States in order to perpetrate an act of uh, war. In in light of the difficulty of of, uh, trying to distinguish uh, uh, domestic from international in any uh, concrete or airtight way, Uh, We've not imposed any artificial constraints on our panelists. They're free to take up whatever uh, topics seem most relevant uh, as they look at the uh, policy legacy of uh, September 11, 2001. Uh, We can't put borders on the problems, and therefore we've not attempted to put borders on uh, our panelists' conceptualization of them. That said, the the domestic policy implications of uh, September 11 and the response to it are obviously uh, uh, important, uh, pervasive, and... Uh, Complex. As a result, our our distinguished panelists have um, a difficult task in subject matter terms alone uh, ahead of them. In an effort to leave time for uh, questions, they've uh, agreed to make their task uh, even more difficult, uh, perhaps ridiculously difficult by academic uh, standards, since we academics are all long winded. Uh, uh, They've agreed to to speak uh, for only 10 minutes. A piece. We'll see whether or not uh, we, we all manage to succeed, but that's our that's our goal. We'll proceed as follows. I'm going to give uh, the briefest of introductions to each speaker. As it's uh, the speaker's turn to uh, make a presentation, they'll then uh, speak for about 10 minutes. Uh, I'll speak last, and and we'll then open the floor to uh, questions. Uh, the first of our speakers will be uh, Professor Paul Krugman. Uh, professor Krugman is professor of uh, economics and international affairs. Here at Princeton, he's the author of uh, regular contributions to the New York Times and also uh, many books, uh, among them uh, among them recently, uh, Fuzzy Math, The Essential Guide to the Bush Tax Plan, published in 2001 by Norton. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Krugman. Okay,
2: and in some ways, I, I'm obviously supposed to speak about the economic uh, uh, impacts, economic policy implications, uh, in some ways I think I've got the easiest task here because the, the bottom line, I won't be coy about it, is remarkably small. Basically, uh, if you ask how much impact September 11th really had on the domestic economy, how much impact it has on the fundamentals of of economic policy, um, it's, it's a lot smaller than you think. Um, In fact, if you have to say what the main implication has been, it has, in fact, changed the way people think a lot more than it's changed the realities. Uh, And in that sense, it has changed what would have been – I think the economy right now would be about where it it is had September 11th uh, never happened. Uh, But the state of political debate about the economy would be extremely different, and the the policy responses might be very different. So let me just talk briefly about uh, about both the short-run economic impact – uh, of, the, uh, of the terrorist attack and then about the longer-run uh, effects. Um, you know, after a couple of days, after people like myself had, had gotten over the shock and started to think about the economics, uh, a parallel immediately popped up in, in my mind and, and those of many other people who, who study these things, uh, which was uh, this is a, a Kobe-sized event. Uh, Kobe being the Kobe earthquake in Japan in 1995, um, which was uh, leaving aside the fact that it was an act of God and not an active man, was uh, a localized disaster that killed a lot of people and did a lot of damage. Um, you know, it was, but not not something that devastated a, a broad stretch of the country. Uh, and in fact, it's turned out as as we, we got the more firmer on the numbers that that in fact uh, September 11th was substantially smaller than Kobe. About half as many people killed uh hard to put a figure exactly on the property damage but but quite a lot less and of course japan has half the population and 40 percent the gdp of the united states so in, in terms of of impact uh of the event itself this was something that was uh substantially smaller for us than kobe was for japan and what everybody knew about kobe was that if only, you had only a chart of japanese gdp um and we're looking at quarterly numbers over the past 10 years, you would never have guessed that there was an earthquake that devastated one of the country's major cities. It just isn't visible in the numbers. Um, A number of people, uh, even myself to some extent, rebelled against the conclusion that, that we would experience the same thing in the U.S. The feeling was this had to be worse. Uh, Surely the psychological impact must have been much greater. Uh, I now realize that's actually unfair to the Japanese. Uh, I commend to you Haruki Murakami's uh, book of uh, short stories after the quake uh, that there was a lot more psychological fallout from from Kobe than than I had realized at the time. Uh, But um, certainly in this case, we thought that this would be the first of many, that that it was not a one-time event, and we're still waiting and waiting for some other shoe to drop. Um, There was some feeling that somehow there had to be a bigger impact. Um, Among the arguments that I heard why this was going to be much more noticeable in its economic impact than Kobe was that people were still afraid. They they wouldn't fly on airplanes. Uh, There would be a a lingering impact on consumption spending, uh, which turns out to be true that people wouldn't fly on airplanes and the vacation business is down, uh, but it has had no visible impact on total consumer spending. People just spent on other things. Uh, so that, that is the difference between microeconomics and macroeconomics. Uh, overall, demand didn't, didn't seem to be affected. Uh, a second argument was that there were going to be a lot of frictions in the economy, that uh, with lines at the airports being just the tip of the iceberg, that there would be a lot of uh, security measures taken that would really uh, crimp business, Uh, As it's turned out, uh, lines at the airports are not the tip of the iceberg. They're they're the main story uh, so far. And and, uh, uh, there's an argument that says that we should be suffering more friction, that we've actually done uh, a lot less than we should have done uh, in terms of increased security. But in any case, that hasn't happened. Um, And so, sure enough, if you look at a chart of U.S. GDP uh, over the past two years, You would not, and you you somehow had had managed to miss that that something terrible had happened. You would never know that there was a a terrorist attack. It's just, it's just not visible uh, in the overall data. Um, Which is not to say, of course, that things are fine. Uh, In fact, we have a very troubled economy. Uh, Eerie parallels. So did Japan in 1995, and still, uh, and for much the same reasons. Uh, In both cases, we had an economy that had had a a wild uh, asset bubble. uh, a lot of irrational exuberance, and then was suffering the hangover afterwards. Um, and, uh, and we continue to suffer that, and in much, as I say, pretty much exactly the same way that you would have expected had September 11th never happened. So it, it, in terms of the short-run macroeconomics, it's a non-event, um, and, uh, uh, which is not in any sense to belittle it, but it's re- really quite remarkable. It's just not, not there. Um, what about the longer-term implications? Uh, the most obvious thing is that we have responded. Uh, we've responded with uh, a fair bit of spending on uh, on homeland security uh, and a large uh, increase in military spending, uh, especially planned in, in the out years. Uh, so there's a budgetary impact. Uh, and you might be aware that we have plunged into uh, fairly large budget deficits uh, uh, in, in the past year, and you might think that September 11th and its, its associated expenses have a lot to do with that. Um, it turns out that while not insignificant, they are not the, not the story, basically. It's just not the story. It's, um, September 11th-related spending is a quite small part of the deficit that's emerged in the past year. Uh, basically, uh, that's the result of a collapse of, of tax revenue, uh, and behind that lies a little bit of uh, a slumping economy, uh, a little bit of, of uh, slumping stock market, and mystery factor. Uh, some, something has gone wrong with with, uh, with tax collection. Um, that's an interesting story, but I don't think it has much to do with September 11th. Um, it's, it's called technical factors in the official estimates. Uh, and it's uh, the technical fact we're, we're suffering of. It's, it's like the U.S. balance of payments. Our biggest export is errors and omissions. Uh, uh, the, 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 biggest, the, biggest, uh, the biggest source of, of our budget problem is technical factors. Um, in the longer term, obviously, it's a bigger number. Uh, we are going to be spending a lot on, on, the, uh, on, on the military in particular. Um, and then the question is how big a factor is that in the long-term budget outlook? Uh, the long-term budget outlook has deteriorated drastically. Uh, you may remember that uh, in early uh, 2001, uh, we were, uh, you were hearing projections of, of a $5.6 trillion surplus over the next decade. Um, that was, those, those estimates were, were always upward biased. Uh, that's what fuzzy math was largely about. Uh, they, that was never realistic. But now we're, the, uh, the Congressional Budget Office has, has marked that down to about $1 trillion over the next decade. That's still upward biased. I think actually we're looking at deficits uh, as far as the eye can see. Um, How much of that is because of the security demands uh, and the military demands post September 11th? And the answer is um, something less than $600 billion. Uh, That's the Congressional Budget Office estimate of of everything that's in any way related to terrorism, uh, both military and homeland security. Um, Now, you know, that's, I guess, uh, updating Everett Dirksen, $600 billion there, $600 billion there, uh, You there. Know, eventually we're talking about real money. Um, but it, it's, it's, not, it's not the major factor uh, in the budget deterioration. Um, that should be the end of the story. However, I think the, the, the end of the story, really, the bottom line, is um, that's not the way most people see it. It's not the way it plays politically. Um, if we had had the kind of budget deterioration that we've had um, in the absence of September 11th, I think that would have been the centerpiece of national national debate. We would have been saying, "What's happened, my God? Uh, we have to do something. What, what about uh, maybe even what about that tax cut?" But anyway, it would, be a, it would be a big, a bit, very big issue. In fact, of course, the way it plays is well, I mean, of course, we're running deficits. We're, we're, uh, we're, it's, a, it's a war; you always run deficits in war. Uh, now, the fact is, in, in budget terms, it doesn't look like a war. In budget terms, it looks like a, a you know a, a mild, a modest military buildup, uh, but it does take the spotlight off what would otherwise be regarded as a an alarming budget situation, uh, and in that sense, September 11th has made the national ba- debate extremely different uh, from what what it would have been, uh, and colored economic policy. Um, we'll 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 regret that later on. Obviously, we're we're certainly not facing up to what is, in fact, a, a pretty alarming budget picture. Um, but, but there is nothing uh, – that's certainly the way that it has happened. Uh, so the end result, September 11th, in economic terms, did nothing that you can see to, uh, to short-term economic growth. Uh, had modest – $600 billion – modest impacts on the budget – um, and, uh, but has changed the, the, uh, the language in which we discuss economic policy, uh, and that I think will be the economic legacy.
1: Our second speaker is uh, Professor Nolan McCarty. Professor McCarty is Associate Professor of Politics and Public Affairs here at Princeton. Uh, he is the author of or co-author of a monograph entitled The Realignment of National Politics and the Income Distribution, as well as numerous scholarly articles on United States politics and democratic institutions. Professor McCarty.
3: So, of course, as a political scientist, I'd like to talk about the politics of uh, September 11th, in particular the, the long-term changes in our political system. Uh, political scientists oftentimes like to think about events in terms of their sort of capacity to realign our political relationships, our political competition, our party systems, or critical periods which lead to dramatic changes in political behavior over the longer time span. Uh, in the initial aftermath of 9-11, it was not unreasonable to believe that there would be profound and lasting changes to the American polity. After all, during the 1990s, our political system, which had long been noted for its moderation, Uh, seemed at times to be unraveling we had extended government shutdowns presidential impeachments disputed elections in fact on on september 10th of 2001 the balance of power in our national government hinged on razor-thin majorities and an extremely polarized congress uh, with a president for whom many had felt had not been elected so it was uh, if anything was sort of ripe for a change this this might be this might be it So on September 12th and afterwards, I think there was some consensus that things would would change. Uh, I hesitate to say get better or get worse, but that things might change. Perhaps the feeling was only that they couldn't get worse, uh, but many people felt, I think, reasonably, that the rancor of the 1990s would give way to perhaps more bipartisanship and at least a clearer sense on how to meet the new challenges uh, that our political system faced. This view certainly seemed borne out in the early returns. Presidential approval skyrocketed. Congressional approval skyrocketed. Uh, Trust in government, uh, or as it's phrased in the Gallup poll, trust in our leaders to do the right thing, soared. Uh, Congress itself quickly convened on the Capitol steps to sing God Bless America and passed anti-terrorism legislation almost as quickly. Unfortunately, uh, none of these trends, assuming these trends are good things, none of these trends really had much staying power. The president's approval has shrunk from the, from the, 90%, the 90% to the low 60s. It bounced back a little last week after Bush's uh, UN speech. Uh, Congress's fall from esteem has been far more dramatic, falling from the 80s to below 50, where, even lower than where it was on September 11th. Uh, The figures for the overall trust in government have fallen just as much, except for trust in the executive branch, which is a little bit higher than it was before September 11th. The figures are actually lower than they were in 2000, not exactly a high watermark for trust in our political institutions. Um, The bipartisanship in Congress uh, exhibited by the uh, by the musical performance on the steps was also an early casualty. My collaborators and I have uh, tracked the degree of party polarization in Congress over over its history, essentially as measured by roll call voting patterns, the extent to which partisans vote together. One of the really striking things about the last 25 years is that we've witnessed a really dramatic increase in polarization, or in other words, a dramatic decrease in bipartisanship. From 1980 uh, to this year, this measure has fallen only once. No, it wasn't this year. It wasn't after 9-11. It was 1999 and 2000, not exactly, not exactly again, a sort of a high, high period. Uh, however, the increase in polarization in this current term actually wiped out the modest gains of 1999 and 2000 and is actually one of the largest gains in the past 25 years. So, so the bipartisanship that was witnessed after September 11th is also... Seem to have worn off. So, the question that I, I want to address is why did the wills come off uh, this realignment so soon? I think the easy answer is that the polling numbers and the other types of statistics that I've, uh, I've thrown at you were, were simply an emotional response to the terrorist attacks. And there's no question that, that, to some extent, that's true. But I think the question that is begged is why it was only in a why there was only an emotional response and was not a longer-term implications for political behavior. So I think there are several reasons for this. One, I think, is probably the most important. The new issues, whether they be public policy issues or other issues for debate, actually reinforce rather than cut across the old polarized conflicts in our party system. For example, the issues raised, the size of government. Should we nationalize 40,000 airline safety employees? Should we create a new department for homeland defense? The size of government has long divided uh, Democrats and Republicans. Issues of civil rights and civil liberties. What constraints should be placed on state agents in fighting terrorism? Long an issue of, of sort of partisan division. Not to mention the sort of cultural and social issues uh, and the central nature and goals of U.S. foreign policy. were are all things that divided political elites before 9-11 and continued to divide uh, political elites afterwards. So, the, in other words, I think the initial consensus, which we saw in things like the Patriot Act, were, were simply an artifact of sort of a policy task quo that shifted so far that everyone had supported it. It was not an example of uh, Democrats and Republicans finally getting, getting together. The second reason, and perhaps maybe even more important than the first reason, because I think it reinforces the first reason, is that there's uh, a lack of accountability on dealing with these issues. The American system tends to make political power and authority very diffuse and makes it almost impossible for any part of our government to be held accountable in any sort of plausible way. It certainly didn't prevent politicians from trying to find scapegoats. Bill Clinton, the previous president who didn't do anything to prevent it. George Bush, the current president. The CIA, the FBI, Congress, the INS. Okay. So the problems of the lack of accountability are quite, a, or, for example, the problems of the lack of accountability are quite imper- apparent in the debate over the Department of Homeland Security. So far, at least, the FBI and the CIA have sort of escaped any serious effort at reform members of Congress uh, were able to fight hard to keep their favorite agencies out of uh, the Department of Homeland Security for fear that the missions of those agencies would change to sort of help with uh, prevent domestic terrorism rather than do the sorts of things that the members of Congress created those agencies for in the first place. So sadly, n- neither individual politicians nor political parties fear really being held accountable if, if uh, these reforms don't fail to protect us. So, in the end, I certainly don't want to argue that the terrorist act, attacks have had no effect on domestic politics, at least in the short run. They certainly uh, had effects on the, on the position of, of the president uh, early on. But I think that, for the most part, the basic patterns of political conflict that created problems in the 1990s will continue to, to be with us. However, I would like to leave on one more, slightly more optimistic note. Maybe the political gridlock in the system is not such a terribly bad thing. Perhaps the reason that 9-11 didn't create more political clarity is that the public itself has not had time to fully digest its implications and decide which way it wants to go in terms of all the issues of civil rights, civil liberties, uh, the size and scope and role of government in our society. Perhaps when the public does become clearer in its uh, goals, maybe our political leadership will follow.
1: Our third speaker will be uh, Professor Sarah McClanahan. Uh, Professor McClanahan is Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs here at Princeton. She's also uh, Director of the Bentheim-Tolman Center for Research on Child Well-Being and the author or co-author of uh, several books, including recently uh, Fathers Under Fire, Revolution in Child Support Enforcement. Professor McClanahan.
4: Well, I'm a sociologist, and my uh, main domestic policy interest is families and children, especially low-income families and children. And I've been trying to think about how um, 9-11 may have affected those families. I must admit, when I was first asked this question, I, I had a hard time. Uh, coming up with answers, but um, it was very easy to see what the possible negative effects might be and why funding for a war against terrorism and a war that expanded to a war against Iraq might reduce the amount of money available for domestic social programs. So it was pretty easy to see how the budget constraints might have some negative effects on domestic social policy, especially programs for low-income families. It was a little harder to imagine uh, what the positive effects might be for families and children, but here are a couple of possibilities that I've come up with. Um, Most generally, I think an attack of this kind inevitably increases social solidarity, which in the long run, uh, one might think, would increase uh, spending on low-income families and children wars and national disasters uh, usually create a sense of solidarity among cities and there is plenty of anecdotal evidence that this occurred after 9-11 not only in new york city but elsewhere so you can tune into tv shows where you find that people became pen pals uh, as a result of a mother in one part of the country starting to communicate with a widow in another There's lots of stories from people in New York City where the cars stopped and helped one another, and people were talking to their neighbors that they'd never spoken to in 10 years, and all kinds of things like that came out as a consequence. Um, As compared with other countries, the U.S. welfare state, our set of programs that benefit families and and children, It really stands out for its absence uh, of programs that promote social solidarity. So rather than having universal programs that benefit all citizens alike, uh, the U.S. has meager welfare programs for the very poor and pretty generous tax breaks for the very rich. And such policies are known to undermine solidarity among citizens and ultimately uh, low-income families. More specifically, I think 9-11 may have increased or may increase solidarity by rehabilitating the image of single mothers and presenting these women in a more positive light. The stories in the New York Times about the lost fathers uh, resonated with everyone. The pictures of the 60-plus new babies who were born since 9-11 to fathers uh, during the on the anniversary of 9/11, there was um, a long show that was devoted to these women who were brought together in the Bronx, the Botanical Gardens, to um, to commemorate the date. And they all had their little children, ranging from um, not zero because it was a year later, but from uh, you know, ranging in ages from there. And that was a quite a touching program. Another aspect that I think builds the solidarity was the tremendous racial and ethnic and socioeconomic diversity of the families. And you could see this in both in the New York Times stories, you could hear it the day that the names were read out of all the people who died. I mean, you really had a sense that there was enormous diversity here, and I think proud of that. All these factors should increase social support for single mother families because they help us to identify with these mothers. Such a positive image is not new, nor is the connection between widowhood and positive views of single mothers new. Nearly a hundred years ago in the U.S., states began passing mothers' pensions so that widowed mothers could stay home and raise their children. In 1935, the federal government assumed responsibility for single mothers as part of the New Deal, and benefits were further expanded in the 60s during the War on Poverty. Since Vietnam, however, single motherhood has changed, and so have our images of these mothers. Today, less than 10% of single mothers are widows, and most people do not associate single motherhood with widowhood until 9-11. While the difference between a widowed mother and a never-married mother is real, these mothers have one thing in common. They are trying to raise their child on their own. Interestingly, none of the other Western industrialized countries makes as sharp a distinction between widowed mothers and other single mothers, as does the U.S., Moreover, many of these other countries are initiating programs today that pay mothers, irrespective of their marital status, to stay home and take care of their children. In contrast, the U.S. is reducing and has been reducing cash support to single mothers since 1975. And after the welfare reform of 1996, we ended the entitlement that was pledged to these mothers back in the New Deal, we instituted work requirements and we've set time limits on the length of time they can receive benefits. Currently, the US Congress is in the process of reauthorizing the 1996 welfare reform legislation, which is, again, our major program for these single mothers. Two key issues today are whether to increase work requirements and whether to maintain or cut services for working mothers, such as childcare. There is substantial danger that work requirements will be increased and that funding for the work supports for working mothers will be reduced. So my hope is that the positive image of single mothers created by 9-11 may place some constraint on how this group is treated by Congress. A second possible potentially uh, positive consequence of 9-11 arises from a general, a greater public awareness of the negative consequences of violence for families, and a greater willingness, perhaps, to reduce violence in our neighborhoods and schools. Researchers have known for some time now that conflict and violence are bad for children, with long-term health, negative health outcomes. Indeed, Deborah Prothrow, a Harvard public health at the Harvard School of Public Health, has been arguing for a decade that violence is a public health issue. Yet policymakers in the US have been reluctant to deal with the problems of neighborhood and school violence because of strong opposition to gun control. Numerous surveys in the aftermath of 9-11 have now documented the effects of the bombing uh, on people's sense of safety and security And not surprisingly, these studies have shown that parents and children reacted the most strongly to the events and that mothers and children have been the slowest to recover. These findings in turn have focused attention, I think, on the ongoing violence that exists in many communities in schools on a day-to-day basis. So my hope here is that perhaps 9-11 may have provided the public awareness and the political will to deal with this problem. Thank you. Our
1: fourth speaker uh, this afternoon will be Professor Frank von Hippel. Professor von Hippel is Professor of Public and International Affairs here at the Wilson School at Princeton. He's also a co-director of the Program in Science and Global Security. He's a former uh, assistant director for National Security in the White House Office of Science and Technology and the author, of, among other books and many articles, one entitled Citizen Scientist. Professor Van Hebel.
5: Thank you. Uh, I've uh, been asked to talk about domestic preparedness, and I decided to respond by summarizing my course, uh, Protection Against Weapons of Mass Destruction, in, in ten minutes. It would, have been, it would have been a real challenge if it was five minutes. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, I would like to... Remind you that aside from the anthrax attack, uh, which which didn't kill that many, or, or, uh, these are all hypothetical risks that we're talking about. A, a terrorist group would require motivation, skills, and materials to execute an attack with weapons of mass destruction. And fortunately, uh, although it's, uh, many groups have access to some of these, not very few uh, have have the motivation skills and materials, all three. Uh, there are, furthermore, uh, lots of hypothetical risks that you've been bombarded with, and if you, if you spend enough time thinking about them, you can go into paralysis. Uh, you can also spend huge amounts of money on these problems while I- ignoring organizations like um, cigarette companies and, and problems in the third world that are actually killing millions of people a year. So, so we, we should do what is practical to be knowledgeable and prepared but we should keep these problems in perspective I, I gave that little sermon because some of my colleagues said i would otherwise frighten you <laughs> so i'm going to talk about a biological in, in quick sequence of biological chemical and radi- radiological and nuclear threats so first with regard to biological uh, as we saw with the anthrax letters the imperative imperatives in the bio- in protection against biological terrorism Area are rapid identification and treatment. Uh, for infectious agents, you know, anthrax wasn't infectious, um, but infectious agents such as smallpox, it, uh, a speedy response would be, an intelligence response would be doubly important because you'd only have about one week before the first group of infected individuals began to in- infect a second and potentially much larger group. Now, the, now technically, things have been proceeding a pace. Uh, Uh, There's there's really uh, very interesting uh, developments of of portable devices that can rapidly identify agents, and and I think uh, pretty soon this this stuff will actually be deployed. The organizing of hospitals and doctors uh, to be able to move quickly to contain an infectious outbreak, like what we saw in the paper today about the idea of of, uh, states should be uh, ready to... Inoculate a million people very quickly against smallpox. That, has been, that organization has been proceeding much more slowly. Uh, and for example, and I'll try to pick local examples uh, Mercer County, which includes the university and, and, and the capital, uh, Trenton, is, is resistant to forming a, a, country, a, a county health department that would coordinate emergency responses and distribute federal uh, ter- bioterrorism funds across its 13 municipalities. Uh, just a, a small note, if you 're concerned about the, the possibility of uh, that we might again be uh, confronted with anthrax con- contaminated letters, uh, a home depot type dust mask would help somewhat, <laughs> uh, but not that much because our our uh, susceptibilities to anthrax are uh, uh, span such a a uh, large range. Uh, uh, a dust mask would, um, if, it, if it's fitted properly and you're, not, and you're breathing through it and not around it, uh, would reduce the aerosols by uh, a factor of, of 20 or so, but a range of success, susceptibilities range from, you know, some people will, will be brought down by 10 spores and other people will be resistant up to about a million spores. Uh, chemical. Chemical agents... Uh, Even nerve gases are about 1,000 times less dangerous, less potent per unit weight than anthrax, but still very dangerous. If you disperse a ton of nerve gas, which is an awful lot uh, in the open, its concentration could be lethal over an area about the size of this university, this local example again. Uh, (laughs) A a useful tool to... from acquiring chemical weapons is the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention. I don't think Iraq is a signatory, uh, uh, or or if it is, it hasn't been complying. Uh, Unfortunately, the U.S. has undercut the the authority of of this Chemical Weapons Convention by restricting its inspections rights in this country because of concerns about uh, the, the privacy of business. We've also been dragging our heels on providing helped to Russia to destroy, to destroy its stockpile of tens of thousands of tons of nerve gas. Uh, but, in fact, maybe it's not nerve gas that we should be worrying about. It, maybe it's our own chemical plants, which have huge quantities of toxic chemicals. Uh, you, you may remember, I think it was 1984, there was an accident at the Union Carbide plant in Bhopal that killed at least 3,000 people and injured more than 100,000 uh, many, there's, the EPA has done an inventory of our, of our uh, chemical plants, and many have larger stocks of more toxic materials that could threaten people up to at least 15 miles away. Senator Corzine has a bill uh, to get the EPA to assess and attempt to reduce these risks. You know, why do they have, need such large inventories? But this effort is strongly uh, opposed by the chemical industry. Now, radiological, and I race through the, the topics. Uh, radiological weapons, uh, which are sometimes called dirty uh, bom- nuclear bombs, would involve the dispersal of radioactive materials. These actually would be primarily economic weapons and therefore should have been in Paul Krugman's talk. Uh, pe- people, people could be evacuated before they got very large doses, but then uh, they couldn't live in a contaminated area. For years, uh, uh, because the, the slowly accumulating dose over over a period of years, and so you you you, uh, you could have a, a huge area uh, uh, it, with corresponding huge uh, economic loss, losses. The uh, uh, Brookhaven National Lab estimated the consequences of an accident at a. Spent fuel pool, which are which are where the uh, discharge spent uh, fuel from nuclear reactors. Every reactor has one. It's right next to the reactor. Uh, that if if uh, one of these uh, spent fuel pools caught on you know drained and caught on fire, uh, you could you could uh, ha- evacuate an area which would uh, hit the economy with a half a trillion dollar uh, uh, hit. Um, the the. Um, The biggest uh, sources of radiological hazard are the nuclear reactors and the spent fuel pools. And we haven't had such an accident in this country. Uh, There was one in uh, in, in, uh, Ukraine in 1986, and it it resulted in the the permanent, until now, evacuation of more than 1,000 square miles and restrictions on activities in an area uh, equal to half the size of New Jersey. Now, Princeton is not close to a a power reactor, uh, but we are within range of the long-range effects uh, of of a major release from three, which are about 40 miles away, and five more, which are about 70 miles away. At this distance, if we were downwind, one concern would be land contamination. The other main concern would be the radioactive iodine, uh, which would be a risk in in the air, which would be a risk to to the thyroids of, of children. Uh, A lot of radioactive iodine uh, would be released by a a reactor accident, and uh, uh, if inhaled, it's concentrated in the small thyroid, and and children's thyroids are uh, vulnerable because the cells are dividing, and and therefore they're more vulnerable to uh, damage that would result in thyroid cancer later in life. The the Chernobyl accident caused a, a thyroid cancer epidemic in Belarus and Ukraine. Now, in fact... Two fortunate things. One is that thyroid cancer is seldom fatal, and the other one is that you can actually uh, protect yourself against, uh, uh, your, your children against uh, uh, taking a radioactive iodine into their thyroids uh, by uh, uh, giving them a pill of non-radioactive uh, potassium iodide, which is the chemical in iodized salt. And, and uh, Food and Drug Administration has, has, um, has uh, uh recommended this, uh, and uh, the pills are over-the-counter pills in appropriate doses uh, available at drugstores and and over the web. Now, finally, nuclear explosives. Uh, uh, The biggest threat today is not Iraq's nuclear capabilities. It is Russia's nuclear missiles. Russia has 1,000 nuclear warheads ready to launch at the U.S. within 15 minutes. Uh, Before and after he was elected, President Bush gave speeches in which he stated that he was interested in changing the situation. However, the Defense Department convinced him that it was more important to pursue missile defense uh, and keep our nuclear warheads on on 15 minutes, uh, launch on warning alert. Unfortunately, missile defense doesn't. Uh, you know, it doesn't exist and probably never will. Uh, but So President Bush stopped worrying, but I have not about this problem. <laughs> now, the, the danger that Iraq or al-Qaeda could get a nuclear weapon stems principally from Russia's huge stockpile of nuclear materials. Uh, because of this chaotic transition that's going on in Russia, the danger is that some of this material might find its way to the black market and ultimately to somebody who might use it almost. Uh, The uh, U.S. material is is somewhat vulnerable as well. Uh, Acquiring nuclear materials would put you 90 to 99% of the way to having a nuclear weapon. Uh, The Clinton administration launched programs to help Russia secure and dispose of its excess nuclear weapons materials. Uh, The Bush administration initially proposed to cut these programs, but thanks to some effective lobbying, uh, Congress increased the funding instead, and the Bush administration does support these programs now. But still the effort is minuscule compared to missile defense even though it's much more important Uh, and and it's not receiving high level attention so uh, my bottom line is domestic preparedness is very uneven and for many reasons including the usual ones
1: Our fifth speaker is uh, Provost Amy Gutman. Uh, provost Gutman, in addition to being the university provost, is the uh, Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of uh, Politics uh, and the University Center for Human Values. Uh, her many books include Democracy and Disagreement, co-authored with uh, Dennis Thompson. Professor Gutman.
6: I've been asked to speak briefly about public ethics after 9-11. And just this month, the New York Times ran a retrospective that began by saying that there is near universal agreement that September 11th changed America. Did it change, though should it change, our public ethics? For those of us who were born after Pearl Harbor, the attack on the World Trade Center was the first time we experienced the United States under direct and tragic attack. September 11th changed the consciousness of most Americans, at least temporarily. Many Americans, myself included, became more vividly aware of how vulnerable this powerful country is and how much we need to protect ourselves against terrorism and how much we need allies to aid us in being secure. Whenever our constitutional democracy feels most vulnerable, as certainly it felt and we felt over a year ago, its public ethics is put to the hardest test. For people my age and younger, this is the greatest test yet of our public ethics. For those of you who experienced Pearl Harbor, you have more experience in your lifetime than those of us who didn't. And our greatest leaders, we should recognize, have only very imperfectly stood up to this test in the past. During the Civil War, President Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus. The suspension of the writ meant that innocent people were wrongly held and had no remedy. There is no indication, despite Lincoln's greatness in other respects, that this helped the war effort in any way. During World War I, the famous socialist Eugene Debs was sentenced to 10 years in prison for saying the following to his audience, and I quote, You are good for more than cannon fodder. There's more that I'd like to say, but I can't for fear of going to prison. (laughs) Draw the line in the right place, clearly. More famously, in World War II, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, 120,000 Japanese Americans, aliens, and citizens, 70,000 were citizens, were uprooted from their lifetime homes and placed in what another great president, Franklin Roosevelt, called concentration camps. Not one Japanese American ever was indicted for any crime against the United States, no one ever was convicted. Tragically, the Supreme Court upheld the evacuation of Japanese Americans, a decision widely regarded by constitutional scholars and historians as one of the worst mistakes in Supreme Court history and inimical to our public ethics. But what is our public ethics? Well, we are a society, it's often said, and I think rightly, of immigrants. We're multi ethnic, we're multicultural, and we're multiracial our private ethics are almost as varied as they can come. The public ethics, or at least an important part of the public ethics that we share, is our Constitution. And we share it not only with other Americans, but also with non-citizens who reside in the United States and people all over the globe who similarly subscribe to the ideal of a democracy of the people by the people and for the people. That any such democracy should not perish from this earth is a paramount public value, and therefore no constitutional democracy can afford to take security lightly. But for a constitutional democracy not to perish from this earth, its citizens must have more than security. They must also have liberty. Constitutional democracies remain true to their basic values when they do their best to find security not at the price of liberty, but as a condition of it. Liberty and security go together in a constitutional democracy like a horse and carriage. I won't say anything about love and marriage. Liberty must take the lead such that security follows. Major tenets of our public ethics are written into our Bill of Rights. Those include freedom of speech, press, and religion, the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, the right to be secure in our persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury, the right to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him and her, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his or her favor, I'm adding something which is understood in the Constitution now, but not then, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. These rights are not always easy to interpret and apply, but they are not written into our Constitution as conditional on maximum security. As Kathleen Sullivan, Dean of Stanford Law School, put it in her reflections in the New York Times on 9-11, like diets, Constitutions are meant to restrict us, most when temptation is greatest. And our Constitution, unlike many others, contains no emergency clause providing for its own suspension. Does this mean that nothing has changed in our public ethics after 9-11? No, I think the challenges have escalated. But the basics have not changed. Our public ethics remains that of a constitutional democracy that at its best aspires to liberty and justice for all. Although it is painful to recognize so vividly that we have enemies and they have the effective power to slaughter thousands of innocent people, with this painful change of consciousness comes two potentially positive opportunities. The first is to prove to ourselves and to the world The critical importance of wedding liberty and security we need not we should not we must not sacrifice one to the other that said it is equally important to recognize that all lawful liberties have limits as john locke and all philosophers of liberty liberty have recognized liberty is not license we do not have the freedom falsely to shout fire in a crowded theater or in dodds auditorium To do so is to threaten the security, possibly even the lives of innocent people. Security does limit, but it does not obliterate lawful liberty. The question then arises, what are the precise limits of lawful liberty? The answer to this question brings me to the second positive opportunity that this tragedy brings in its wake. And it is an opportunity to which Princeton University and other institutions of higher education can greatly contribute. Indeed, I would say if we don't contribute to this opportunity, it is hard to believe anyone will. Universities like ours can and should be the homes for free and vibrant debate about how best to wed liberty and security, what lines and limits can be justified by our public ethics and why. And what challenges need to be entertained to the very goal that you or I take to be preeminent to our public ethics, but others may not. Universities are essential places of deliberation about public ethics. They must be places that protect everyone, regardless of their citizenship, to reflect upon and pursue the most critical questions of our time. These reflections are important in themselves for the intellectual insights that they bring. They're equally important for their contribution to one of the most basic values of a constitutional democracy, informed public discourse that holds out the promise of a more perfect union. We cannot leave the Constitution to nine justices of the Supreme Court. It is our Constitution, and it is also an inspiration for others. In the wake of 9-11, it is all the more important that we hold true to the pursuit of a more perfect union, despite the temptations to violate individual rights in the name of security or to interpret liberty as license and therefore deny any legitimate demands of security. Even, however, if we hold true to this pursuit of a more perfect union, 9-11 will remain a tragedy. Yet a response in keeping with our public ethics will not be in vain. Quite the contrary. We now have the responsibility, not just the opportunity, but the responsibility to demonstrate to ourselves and to the rest of the world our commitment to the basic values of constitutional democracy and the basic values of universities like this one that protect the widest defensible freedoms of speech and inquiry, debate and deliberation. If we safeguard these freedoms, we can also demonstrate constitutional democracies' glory under threat. In an insecure world, it is all the more important for lovers of freedom to demonstrate the courage of our convictions.
1: Well, I'm going to speak last uh, and uh, continue with some of the themes that uh, Provost Gutman has uh, begun uh, and get a little bit more to the nuts and bolts of uh, civil liberties uh, issues. Uh, I took Professor uh, Krugman and and Professor McCarty to say in part that Uh, Neither the the fundamentals of our economic system nor the fundamentals of our uh, uh, political system look much changed by uh, the events of uh, September 11th. In the area of civil liberties, the the evidence of change is uh, greater. Exactly how much change is is unclear, but uh, but the landscape does seem um, um, uprooted uh, a bit. All all of you, I think, have heard of the... uh, anti-terrorism legislation that uh, some of my fellow panelists have already referred to, uh, the USA Patriot Act. I I don't know whether you've actually seen a copy of the USA uh, Patriot Act. I've got a copy of it here. One of the great things about the Internet. I I think this is my favorite thing about the Internet. Probably not your favorite thing, but my my favorite thing about the Internet is that you can get virtually any legal document you want off of it. Here's the USA Patriot Act. It's 342 pages uh, long uh, weighs about ten pounds by my uh, estimate if you if you open it up and start um, uh, reading it, you you get uh, things like uh, this uh, section thirty one 3 of title eighteen of the United <laughs> by inserting or process after device each place it appears so even if you were to sit down and try to read this you wouldn 't know exactly what it 's doing i 'm accordingly not going to try to um, describe to you everything that's happened, or or even a rough summary of the things that have have happened in the field of civil liberties, but rather to focus on a basic recurring issue that I think will uh, uh, preoccupy all of the institutions that are concerned with this balance between security and liberty that uh, Provost Gutman's referred to. Uh, Here's the issue. American courts have traditionally drawn a sharp distinction between domestic and international uh, matters. The domestic realm has been conceived of as uh, a place governed by the rule of law. Uh, In this domain, for example, courts have developed a rich set of rights and procedures to protect uh, persons accused of crimes, even if they are accused of very horrible crimes and even if there's a great public sentiment that they are guilty. The international realm, by uh, contrast, has been perceived as a kind of domain of uh, realpolitik, where the national government must have unfettered discretion or almost unfettered discretion, and where it's just too dangerous for courts to venture. It's almost like one of those old maps one sees sometimes where the cartographers would, would put in great detail the parts of the world that had been explored and then off at the edges would be a, a notation, here there be dragons. As far as, as far as the American courts are concerned, there are dragons in the ro- domain of, uh, of international and foreign matters, and so courts have not dared to limit the government's power with regard to such matters as Foreign intelligence, war, and immigration, but the idea—the the idea now current of a war without end, uh, fought against enemies who might be concealed within our midst—makes a hash of that distinction between the domestic and the uh, international. Criminal law, which has been subject to intense judicial supervision, has been blended with intelligence law, uh, the law of war, and immigration policy, uh, um, all of which in the past have been virtually immune from. Uh, Uh, judicial investigation or uh, supervision. So let me give you three examples of the way that's uh, uh, taken place. Example number one, the Justice Department, uh, acting partly pursuant to the USA Patriot Act, uh, has tried to expand the range of surveillance that can be considered intelligence operations rather than law enforcement operations. The the amount of surveillance that can be done of suspicious persons on the ground that, that we need this for Uh, intelligence reasons rather than for a particular uh, uh, prosecution. This surveillance is is subject, first of all, to lower procedural standards, and secondly, it's supervised by a different institution. It's supervised only by the the secret FISA court, as lawyers call it, or the the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Act uh, court. Uh, For a long time, people had thought that this court was a pushover uh, and that it would do nothing to intervene in cases of civil liberties. It's turned out this isn't true. That, that court issued an opinion earlier this year in response uh, to uh, proposals of the uh, Ashcroft Justice Department, um, holding those proposals unlawful under the relevant uh, statutes that's been appealed now to, uh, to the special secret appellate court that supervises this court, a court that has never before met, which is going to uh, review that uh, decision. But this is one blending of what used to be a criminal law track and, and a, an international track, a foreign affairs track, in the area of intelligence. Second example, one that all of you probably uh, know, uh, Jose Padilla is the famous dirty bomb uh, uh, suspect. He's an American citizen, uh, uh, said to be an Al-Qaeda agent, arrested in the United States at O'Hare Airport, uh, and charged with uh, planning to commit what, again, in the past would have been considered a crime, uh, that is the, uh, a terrorist act against the uh, United States. He's since then been held as a prisoner of war and the government claims that because he's being held as a prisoner of war and not as a criminal defendant, he's not entitled to any process whatsoever. None of the legal protections that would apply in the criminal justice system uh, apply to him. Presumably, presumably this kind of argument could have been applied as well. It wasn't, but I, I see no reason why it couldn't have been applied to the five persons just arrested in Buffalo, New York. That is, they are being charged with being agents of al-Qaeda and, and I don't see what distinguishes them from uh, Padilla uh, on this logic. Anybody who is suspected of being an agent could conceivably be uh, taken into custody and held without judicial um, uh, intervention of any kind and without uh, legal procedural protection. So that's example two, an intersection of the prisoner of war track, which used to be thought to be foreign affairs with the domestic law enforcement track. Uh, example number three, and, and to my mind, perhaps the most enduring and wide uh, spread of these uh, problems, uh, Uh, This involves the use of immigration law in connection with uh, uh, criminal law. Under our Constitution, as uh, uh, Provost Gutman accurately suggested, uh, if non-citizens are charged with a crime, the fact that they're a non-citizen doesn't matter. They're entitled to the same procedural protections as uh, citizens. On the other hand... If you're a non citizen and you're charged with immigration violations, which of course no citizen can be charged with, it's a problem unique to non citizens, then you're subject to all sorts of summary procedures with a lot less procedural protection. Uh, and in general, courts have said as a constitutional matter, you're ati- entitled to virtually nothing, uh, and uh, Congress and uh, the President have been stripping back procedural and other regulations that used to uh, supply protections. Uh, The Justice Department has begun using the immigration law. This was always done to some extent, but is is being done very provocatively now. Using the immigration law in order to go after people who are effectively suspects in criminal investigations. Example of that, uh, Ali Mokhtari is a French teacher who's a Yemeni citizen. He he lives in the United States. He's married to uh, a soldier in the United States Army. Uh, He accompanied her. as She was reporting to base shortly after September 11th in uh, uh, Kentucky. Uh, He was arrested and held because he was suspected of terrorism, but he was never charged with terrorism, and that wasn't the reason given for his arrest. The reason given for his arrest was that he had been in the United States for 10 days illegally while changing his visa from a tourist visa to a permanent resident uh, uh, visa. And the the government was within its legal technical right to hold him for two months uh, uh, in connection with that violation. But it shows how a technical violation can be used uh, as part of a a law enforcement uh, device. I think there is an extraordinary risk of the kind that uh, uh, the provost called to our attention uh, uh, moments ago in this kind of casual use of a foreign affairs track for law enforcement uh, purposes. This, this puts in uh, jeopardy what seems to me one of the most basic principles around which our society has uh, constituted uh, it itself: the basic principle that people should be presumed innocent until proven guilty, and presumed innocent even if they don't uh, look like this, uh, look like us, and are from. Uh, a foreign uh, uh, community and even if there's great community sentiment uh, against them. Uh, The ability of courts and other institutions to cope with the challenges to civil liberties after 9-11 will I think depend upon developing devices, doctrines, institutions, and rules to negotiate between these domestic law tracks, uh and what used to be considered the domain of the dragons, the uh, uh, foreign affairs tracts. I, I, I don't think this is going to be easy. I, I don't think one can simply prohibit the use of these uh, devices. I, I don't think even though there aren't dragons there, there are real difficulties in having courts uh, police these areas as intensely as they have done criminal uh, law, but uh, uh, the courts will have to come up with some sorts of procedures. And I'll very rapidly list for you um, three of those that have actually been used by courts so far. One are sunshine procedures, that is, requiring openness. So, for example, Sixth Circuit has, the uh, uh, United States Court of Appeals, has held that immigration, deportation uh, hearings in general need to be open. That gives the citizenry a chance to observe at least what's going on and debate whether or not this is the kind of thing that we want to be doing. Second, gatekeeping devices. The FISA court did that. They said, we don't think this kind of law enforcement activity being proposed by the Ashcroft administration should be part of the foreign intelligence track. And they issued an opinion, a secret court issued a public opinion, uh, and uh, again, made that uh, part of the public debate as well. And finally, in some of these areas, uh, it it may indeed require uh, the development of increased procedural protections uh, that courts have been reluctant to apply to foreign affairs-type areas uh, in the past, okay, we've done that. Six speakers in an hour, uh, all within our uh, time limits. That leaves uh, approximately half an hour for uh, questions. We have two mics uh, down here in the center, and I appreciate it. it would appreciate it both the, so that uh, people can hear you, uh, and so that um, uh, we can um, uh, succeed in getting the this, your questions out to people who may be uh, listening elsewhere. Uh, that if you would use the microphone. Uh, ask your uh, questions uh, here in the front whatever
2: Okay. Let, boy, I don't think this has much to do with 9-11. Um, it's, uh, let, let me just say that, that the fundamental problem with the U.S. economy is that we have, the short-term problem is that we have an overhang of various legacies from the, from the 90s. We have an overhang of excess capacity, too, mu- too much fiber optic in the ground, um, um, <laughs> an overhang of, of corporate debt, and so on. This, is all, this all makes it difficult. Uh, business, business investment collapsed and uh, and has yet to show any real signs of recovery. Um, what we know is that long-term interest rates are what determine, t- to the extent that interest rates matter at all, it's long-term rates uh, that drive it. Um, the rates have fallen, uh, but they haven't fallen you know, nearly as much as the short-term rate. Uh, they haven't fallen as much as... Um, we have had substantial decline in the inflation rate, which probably means that the real long-term interest rate. This is going to go on too long, right? Uh, but it hasn't fallen nearly as much as uh, hasn't really fallen very much at all. Um, what I would say is that that the the unfolding, I think the the answer for this one is the unfolding of our continuing economic difficulties has been. You know, no one no one can call, could call the numbers right, but it's been very much. A, in line with people who who emphasize that overhang from from the 90s set and uh, uh, it just has continued if you ask what why are why is the economy um, sputtering now why was the dow down 190 points today um, probably didn't know that but uh, <laughs> um, the um, the answer is 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 that it is that uh, business investment remains slack consumers are looking a little nervous and it's uh, it's very hard to see anything that's related to 9-11 and all of that. It's all, pe- people aren't worried about terrorist attacks. Now they're worried about their jobs, and with, with considerable reason.
1: A question from Michael Koshin of the University Center for Human Values. I would like to ask uh, Professor Eisgruber and Provost Gutman if they think that the power
2: to suspend habeas corpus is a mistake, that it shouldn't be in the Constitution. Is it a blot that we need to remove? Are there no foreseeable circumstances in which that would be required? And perhaps some of the problems that uh, that Professor Eisgruber alluded
1: to uh, in the uh, use or manipulation of immigration regulations would have been more forthrightly accomplished had Congress and the President, as part of the Patriot Act, suspended the writ of habeas corpus for certain classes of persons. Uh, I don't know if any of my students from my freshman seminar are are here today, but as it it happens, one of the things we discussed was the constitutional provision pertaining to the suspension of the writ of uh, uh, habeas uh, corpus, so fortunately I read it uh, recently, Uh, and and although I'm not usually a uh, a textualist, I want to give a partly textualist answer to this uh, and and then um, uh, say something about why I think that's the right right response. or the right kind of rule to have. That is, the, the constitutional provision pertaining to the um, writ of habeas corpus says that it uh, may be suspended uh, in uh, cases of invasion or rebellion when the uh, public safety uh, requires. Uh, now, that's a pretty limited uh, authorization for uh, suspension. It refers specifically to invasion or rebellion. I don't think we have either of those things, I suppose. And again, I'm generally willing to uh, allow... Uh, um, a, 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 purposive and imaginative construction of the, uh, constitution to fit political goals. Somebody might say, well, look, uh, um, we have a kind of invasion. We, we have, uh, sleeper agents, um, uh, among us. But uh, but let me remind you of the kind of invasion we have uh, right now. Our, our administration has uh, said to us it's important for us to uh, go about our lives as though terrorism uh, wasn't happening. It's important to go shopping, they said shortly after 9-11. It's important to take vacations. Our, our travel industry isn't broken. Our shopping malls aren't broken. Only our courts are uh, uh, broken. I, I'm suspicious of that, and I, and I think that there may be good reasons as a matter of uh, of uh, uh, constitutional principle, to make adjustments in the the face of circumstances to the particular guarantees that are vindicated through the writ of habeas corpus. But I think there's a reason why that provision is in there with such uh, specificity. Uh, This idea that the government has to be willing to offer reasons for what it's doing is very fundamental to our uh, democracy and fundamental with regard to this particular liberty and has been so since before our nation existed.
6: I would, um, I use the example of the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus not to suggest that it's never justified. Indeed, our Constitution suggests that it is, can be justified, but rather um, to suggest that in the wake of 9-11, I suspect that precious few American citizens know what Chris Eisgruber knows about what the Constitution says about the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, and even more so, we haven't had a robust political or intellectual discussion about the conditions under which it is legitimate to suspend it, and why. And so, the main point that I want to make is that if we just focus 9-11 on what happened, and how unusual this was for people, you know, post Pearl Harbor, we actually lose an important intellectual and ethical opportunity to think through questions, very important questions about our public ethics that are not resolved historically, but can be informed by history. It is important to see how and when the writ of habeas corpus, the suspension of it actually served some reasonable purpose and when it didn't. And I think it's important to have a public debate over that. And when, it, when it's impossible to have a public debate because somebody is, who debates it is thought to be unpatriotic, then it's all the more important for universities to protect that space in which people can freely discuss it. I frankly don't know exactly where the line should be drawn. Um, now, I, that probably puts me maybe in a minority that a lot of people are sure that it should, but you know, I've thought a lot about it and I think it's a very difficult question. And when I discuss issues like that with my students, they're definitely engaged by it. So I just think we need a more robust space for discussing questions like the one you asked me and I just want to make sure that you understand that in using these examples, I wasn't suggesting that there are clear answers to a lot of these questions.
1: Question here. Um, I'd like
5: to address my question <clears throat> to Professor Gutman, too. Uh, I think I heard you say that we shouldn't depe- uh, depend uh, on the nine members of the Supreme Court to safeguard our constitutional liberties. It seems to me that everything focuses down. And we are uh, dependent on those nine people on the Supreme Court. Uh, The other questions that were raised here about the secret court, that's going to be appealed up to the other secret court, probably arriving at the Supreme Court. And uh, a dozen other things that came up. Uh, I wish you could elaborate on that.
6: The Supreme, we, we must depend in part on the Supreme Court because it is a constitutional institution of our... Government it is the court of last resort. Capital C. Isn't the court of last resort in interpreting our public ethics. We have every right, indeed, every responsibility to, let me put it in the, the hardest way to my position, to second guess the Supreme Court. Did they make the right decision and why? One of the glories of Supreme Court decisions is they give the justices give reasons. And as you know, often the justices disagree, often five to four. It's interesting, in times of war, there's been much less willingness for the justices to disagree. But the decision of Japanese internment, there were two dissenting justices. And overwhelmingly, the opinion today is the dissenters got it right. Um, so we have to, we have no alternative but to depend on the Supreme Court and not to depend on them exclusively. Because we are also citizens partly constituted, those of us who are partly constituted by our Constitution, and those people who are not citizens of the United States and know about our Constitution also have to judge it. So that's what I meant by we can't depend exclusively on the nine justices of the
4: Supreme Court.
1: Other questions? Yes, C-way.
4: Hi, um, I'm a sophomore in, in Princeton University, and my question is addressed to the panel as a whole. Um, what do you think about the, you know, the war in Iraq that we are tentatively about to embark on in terms of public ethics that you've been talking about earlier that we would apply domestically? What do you think of it in terms of regime change in Iraq?
1: One of you uh, – yes, uh, Professor Ron Hippel.
5: Actually, uh, I, I'll, I'll respond because actually I was going to give another talk originally. It was going to be about Iraq. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and basically uh, the, way, the way I, I – mean, and it's not the whole it, – it, it's uh, nowhere near an answer to the whole question that you're asking. But I just uh, thought it would be useful to – since the focus is on nuclear – the, the Iraq's nuclear um, threat. Uh, to say a couple things about that, I mean, and, and the way I organize my, you know, this is, is to say: first of all, does Iraq have nuclear weapons? Secondly, would they use them if they did, or give them to a terrorist group? And third, uh, if they wouldn't use them, why do they want them so bad? And and just briefly, uh, the answer. My answer to the first question is: is they, if, if it's. Uh, a uh, question of domestic production of nuclear material—they probably don't have them. Uh, there's always this uh, wild card that they could acquire nuclear weapons materials through the uh, black market. Uh, but that—that that nothing has changed, um, you know, in, in, in uh, these last few months. It wasn't true for the last 12 years, as far as I know. And—and and there's no indication in any of the intelligence digests. Uh, such as the one that uh, Prime Minister Blair put out today. Secondly, would they use it? Uh, they, uh, would they use nuclear weapons of mass destruction? Uh, they, uh, Iraq did use uh, chemical weapons against uh, the Kurds and against Iran, but in those, we didn't criticize them for that uh, because uh, we were backing Iraq against Iran at the time. Now it would be uh, it would be a capital offense. I mean, there would be no question that the world would come down on them, and so. I don't think that um, I, I, I think that Iraq is probably deterred from using nuclear or chemical or biological weapons except in and the third point is why do they want them these things so much that they're standing up to the whole world to uh, in defying of the UN Security Council and and so, so on in terms of inspections and I think it is really their deterrent and that the uh, most likely way in which um, we would get Iraq to use its weapons of mass destruction would be if we attack Iraq. Other,
1: other panelists uh, want to say anything in response to that question? A, we're, we're worried by our lack of expertise, perhaps, and, and playing it safe on a difficult issue. Uh, we probably have time for one last question, if there is one. Bill Burke-White.
7: Provost Gutman and uh, Professor Eisgruber both talked about this kind of tension between uh, security and liberty. And to some degree this is, uh, seems to be a value choice. How much uh, liberty are we willing to give up for a little bit more security? And I wonder whether there has been a shift in America in this value choice Uh, And how we reconcile the fact that there doesn't seem to have been a fundamental shift from the panel in terms of uh, economics and politics when there has been possibly one uh, on this value choice of of liberty versus security. Uh, So I guess I wanted to see how we we reconcile that, whether we think there has been such a shift, and if so, is it simply a short-term one or is it a longer-term one that might eventually have repercussions in the areas of politics and economics and sociology uh, as well. So uh, that's sort of a a free question for anyone on the panel, um, but uh, I'll I'll open it to whoever might want to respond.
1: Nolan McCarty.
3: As you can see, I really went grubbing for data to look for things that seem to have changed. Now, it's it's true that I mostly looked at sort of electoral indicators and and public opinion indicators in terms of general views of the government (coughs) and general views about the political parties. My sense is that, uh, so I didn't look specifically at the indicators of value choices. My suspicion is that you find the same type of effect there, that initially after September 11th, people felt threatened. They were supportive of things like the, the Patriot Act, but that I would assume that, that that rally effect was probably diminished just like many of the other
2: indicators that I did look at. But, sure. Uh, this is pure amateur stuff, but I'm, I'm an avid consumer of, of the uh, work that Nolan and, and his colleagues put out, and um, this is a purely amateur opinion, so I should you know, dispense with my, my, uh, my degrees and authority and everything like that. Um, just to say, uh, my sense is that if the general public was never as sensitive to these issues of, of, of liberty, you know not just because most people aren't constitutional scholars as, as, as we might wish they were that that any time in the past hundred years, if, if you had asked people in the street what what would you do they would be prepared to go along with things that that we would not have contemplated doing in fact um, that what mattered was that there was an establishment uh, there were, there was a, a centrist Group of people spanning party lines—that that knowledgeable people in Washington who would, who would say, "Look, these are there are things you can't do." Um, and my, both from reading the the work of uh, McCarty and, and Poole and Rosenthal, and also uh, just from what I've been observing, uh, there is no center. Essentially, we have that there is no group like that. It's it's a completely polarized political system. Uh, there is no one who is going to cross party lines to say, uh, "No, uh, Attorney General, you can't do that sort of thing." Um, and and for that reason, we have uh, uh, moves on the civil liberties front that would, would not have happened uh, in previous decades.
1: Let, let me offer a, a kind of ambivalent answer to the uh, question, both both about whether something is happening, why we might e- expect uh, and why we might expect to see it here rather than someplace else. I think it's it's too early to say what's happened. That is, in some respects, uh, frightening things have happened. Uh, people have been detained without reason and in secrecy, and without access to. Uh, Lawyers, On the other hand, uh, some things haven't happened. We haven't had uh, something like the catastrophic internment of Japanese uh, uh, Americans. And the response of district court judges uh, to these cases, district court judges appointed by Republicans or by uh, uh, Democrats, has been uh, remarkable. They haven't simply folded up. And for the most part, they've enforced statutes, statutes coming out of Congress rather than the Constitution, to limit these things. So I I think there's an ongoing debate, and we're going to have to see – uh whether or not real change occurs but i but i think there's a reason to be concerned i don't think we can simply say business as usual uh about this uh, and and perhaps uh, Kathleen sullivan's diet metaphor uh explains why that's uh so in in some sense when we're talking economy or we're talking uh uh voting behavior i think we're we're talking largely about large groups of uh people seeking to pursue their own uh interests in systems that to a great extent uh, uh accommodate that and and we go back to our old eating habits uh so to speak uh and 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 it's not about dieting in those uh uh systems but uh civil liberties and constitutionalisms uh constitutionalism do involve certain kinds of restraints on some of our interests and preferences in the name of our uh in the name of Half of people who, again, who don't look like us and who seem different from us. And whether or not we're willing to do that uh, under these circumstances, I think, remains an open uh, question. I, I think that uh, uh, ends what has been um, only one in a series, as Dean Slaughter has uh, reminded us of these uh, discussions, but uh, Provost Gutman has called for uh, a need for a robust space, I think, for uh, public uh, debate about this, and and I hope that hall has been that uh, today. I certainly feel it has, and it will continue to be as we continue with these events over the course of the year. Thank you for coming.